Let's have a word of prayer as we get started on our study in this wonderful book of Revelation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to open this book and to study this book. Lord, you have much truth to impart to us, and we pray that you would encourage our hearts as we work our way through each chapter and each verse. So Lord, we pray that you would enlighten our hearts, give us peace in our spirit, give us instruction for our daily life, and above all, help us to apply what application that we do find in these 22 chapters. Lord, we thank you so much for how you have blessed and encouraged us through your word, and we just pray that you would be relevant to us and speak to us through your word as we study week by week. So Lord, encourage us, lead and guide us, help us to be faithful to apply what you're going to teach us to our walk with you. All the glory goes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A study of Revelation. This is a very special book. And from the very first chapter, we can see that this is a very important chapter that lays the foundation. Normally, when I teach a Bible study, I will start with the foundation and who is the author and where was the author and what's the date of writing. I really don't have to do that this time because usually uh, you have to bring all of that out from other sources. Revelation chapter 1 is the foundational chapter for this book and it's an important foundational chapter because in Revelation 1, John introduces his book and gives us all the data that's essential for appreciating and understanding this prophecy. So the chapter itself is the foundation. The only thing I need to add is he wrote in about 95 AD. So it's second generation believers. Jesus died in about 30 AD. So about 65 years later, John is on the Isle of Patmos, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And he's writing the visions. He's writing all that God had revealed to him while he's on Patmos. So it's a very special book. And this is a very important foundational chapter. Well, let me give you the outline. We're going we're gonna to talk about several different things. First of all, the title of the book is in chapter 1, verse 1, the very first part. The author is the middle of verse 1 and verse 2, also in verse 4 and verse 9, and again in chapter 22, verse 8. So John identifies himself a number of times. Thirdly, the readers, verses 3 and 4. The dedication, verses 4 through 6. The theme, verses 7 and 8. The occasion is verses 9 through 18. The outline is verse 19. And then we have a very important concluding verse verse 20 that we'll get to after the outline in chapter 19. So that's the outline of the chapter. That's where we're heading in this lesson today. So let's begin with the title. Let's read Revelation 1.1. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. 
Well, the word translated revelation simply means unveiling. It gives us our English word apocalypse, which unfortunately today is a synonym for chaos and catastrophe. But the verb simply means to uncover or to reveal. It's as if that the Holy Spirit is pulling back the curtain and giving us the privilege of seeing the glorified, risen, exalted Jesus in heaven and showing us all the fulfillment of his sovereign purposes in the world. That is simply what what the word means. It is a revelation. It is an unveiling. But the question is this. It's a revelation of what? I know that whenever I used to have a King James Bible, my Bible for Revelation always says the revelation of St. John the Divine. Some people believe this is the revelation of the Antichrist or the revelation of the end time events or the revelation of future events. It is none of these. Make sure you're very clear on the title of this book and its meaning. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not revelations. Most people will say it's the book of revelations. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this book, we see him in a number of different ways. Jesus in Revelation Chapters 1 through 3, he is the exalted priest king ministering to the churches. In chapters 4 and 5, he's the glorified Lamb of God reigning on the throne. In chapters 6 through 18, he's the judge of all the earth. In chapter 19, he returns to earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And chapters 20 to 22, the close of the book, he is the heavenly bridegroom ushering his bride into the glorious heavenly city. That's Jesus. He is the revelation of this book. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear to you all, though, on this, and that the entire Bible is about Jesus. The entire 66 books form a unit which tell us much about him. If you've been around me very long, you know that I love Bible typology. Bible typology is very important because the Bible shows us Jesus in virtually every chapter in every book. Now, I know God's not mentioned in the book of Esther, and I know sometimes it's more difficult to see Jesus in others, but I I just bring out a, a few types for you. Jesus is typified by the skins of the animals that God used to clothe Adam and Eve after they sinned because it was Jesus' sacrifice, his blood that was shed to cover, to cleanse our sin. And God in the Garden of Eden slew animals, used their skins to cover Adam and Eve, and that's a type of Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus. We see Jesus in the Passover lamb. We see him in the Levitical sacrifices. That is a marvelous study in Leviticus, chapters 1 through 7. All of the offerings, all of the sacrifices speak of Jesus Christ in his person or his work. We also see Jesus in the life of Isaac, in the life of Joseph. We see him in the ram caught in the thicket when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. We see Jesus in manna. We see him in Jacob's ladder. He is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings in the book of Malachi. 
He is the suffering servant. He's the conquering king. So the entire Bible is a revelation of Jesus. But we see Jesus in Revelation. It is the fulfillment. It's the climax. It is the pivotal event when God brings all of his sovereign purposes to fruition. That Jesus is the exalted priest king. He is the glorified lamb of God. He is the judge of all the earth. He returns as the king of kings. And he, as the heavenly bridegroom, takes his bride into the glorious heavenly city. That is a wonderful book for us to study because we're going to see Jesus like we've not seen him before. I think you'll agree with me already. This is a very special book, is it not? Well, let's move on. The author. The author, as we saw in verse 1, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. John is the author. John, as you know, wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote epistles, and he wrote the Revelation. Many Bible scholars will tell you, oh, it really wasn't John that wrote this. We're not sure because the Greek is different. But folks, the Greek could possibly be different simply because he probably used a secretary or what Bible scholars call them an amanuensis. And he certainly did not use one while he was on the, the Isle of Patmos writing Revelation. He was alone. He was in exile. However, really, it doesn't matter, does it? The, 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 the difference in Greek, he's writing totally different literature. There is no other book like Revelation. Well, let's compare John's writings. In the Gospel of John, the theme is believe. With the epistles, the theme is be sure. 1 John 5 is the signature passage on the assurance of your salvation. So in the epistles, he is telling us we can be sure about our salvation. In the revelation, the theme is be ready. The gospel is about life received, the epistles, life revealed, and revelation, life rewarded. The gospel of John is about salvation the epistles are about sanctification, our walk with the Lord, and Revelation is about sovereignty, God bringing down the close of human history and bringing all of his purposes to fruition. In the gospel, Jesus is seen as prophet, in the epistles, priest, and in Revelation, king. Isn't that amazing, the way all of John's writings are tied together? John, the gospel writer, the writer of the epistles, and the revelator gives us totally complete pictures of how we're saved, how we ought to walk through the life of sanctification, how at the end our life is rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. It shows Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. This is a wonderful book. So, as we said before, John wrote about 95 AD. And did you notice in verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, thing which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So God the Father gave the revelation to Jesus, his son, and Jesus gives it to his servant, John, through an angel. 
that's how the revelation how the revelation was passed along in 95 AD father to son to the servant through an angel it says in verse 1 the things which may must shortly take place that really doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen right away but what what it really does mean in one sense is that when these things start to occur they're going to they're going to come rapidly or swiftly once we see the rapture of the church and the rise of the antichrist these things are going to happen one by one by one by one at a very quick pace you know if it really didn't mean that it wouldn't bother me would it bother you because shortly to god what is shortly to god 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 is not constrained by time Time is a creation for us, not God. God always sees everything in an ever-present now. And so, according to John, when John wrote in 95 AD, as far as God's concerned, it's going to happen shortly. So, it really probably means quickly, swiftly, when all of these things start to happen. Well, that other word, there's another word in verse 1, and it's signified. Now, that word signified means to show by a sign. And that simply means that John wrote with a lot of types and symbols. He really wrote in a spiritual code. And, you know, there's several reasons why he probably wrote with a lot of symbolism. For one thing... This kind of code is only understood by those who know Christ personally. If any of the Roman officers of that day had tried to use that as evidence against Christians, the book would have never been understood by them. They could not have used that. But an even greater reason is that symbolism is not weakened by time. We get the same value. We get the same application we get the same teaching out of those symbols that the church did in that day it conveys they, these symbols convey information but it all they also arouse emotions and imparts value simply because there's going to be a dictator called the antichrist but john describes him as a beast that imparts value and it arises arouses emotion because that is a beast. It's not just a man. It's not just a dictator. John's on the Isle of Patmos, probably under the the uh, the the uh, reign of Domitian, a very evil emperor. And John wrote in a spiritual code so that the Romans would not know what he was writing, but. None of that lost its none of that lost its uniqueness, didn't lose its meaning over time, and it still conveys the same information and arouses emotion and imparts values in that day and in our day. So that's the word in verse one signified. Verse two, we didn't read verse two. Look at verse two. John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So we have the Father giving the revelation to Jesus, giving it to John, who is bearing witness to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus to everything that he saw. 
Now let's move on. The next two verses, verses 3 and 4, are about the readers. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Now the readers, it's very clearly pointed out here, the readers of the seven churches which are in Asia. Now these seven churches were located on a major travel route connecting population centers of Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. John's not writing to satisfy their curiosity. He is writing them for encouragement and examination. He is saying, here's what's going to happen. But above all, in chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, be ready. Jesus is examining you. Jesus walks among you. Jesus knows you. Jesus is going to come in judgment. You better be ready. So he is encouraging them, but he's also saying, be ready for examination. Now, in my experience as a Bible teacher, I know a lot of people, there's two extremes when you talk about the book of Revelation. One of them is people who never read it, never study it, because they don't think they can understand it. But did you see what it said in verse 3? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. This is There are seven beatitudes in this book. Seven blesseds. This is the first. So it says here, blessed is he who reads and those who hear. Now you understand, in that day, everybody didn't have a Bible. Someone would stand up and take a scroll and read. And so when John's sending the letter, this is a letter to the churches, somebody's going to stand up there and read it, and those in the congregation will hear it. So John is saying, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words, and those who keep those things which are written in it. So you're blessed if you read, you're blessed if you hear, you're blessed if you obey. And John's writing, grace to you, and peace from him who is, and was, and who is to come. Is that not an awesome explanation or a characterization of Jesus and God? Grace to you and peace from him. It doesn't say who was and is and is to come. He says who is. Because God has always been. Jesus has always been. The Holy Spirit has always been. So Jesus is, and he was, he came as a human, and he's coming back. So grace to you and peace from him, and from the seven spirits before the throne. That's really the dedication that we get into in Revelation 4 through 6. Let's read those three verses as they go together. I want to read that verse 4 again. John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was 
and who is to come and from the seven spirits are from before the th- are before the, his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen wow That's the dedication. God is the eternal one. We see God as who was, is. We see Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, ruler over the kings of the earth. That tells us that Jesus Christ is here in his threefold office. We see him as prophet, the faithful witness, We see him as priest, the firstborn from the dead. We see him as king, ruler over the kings of the earth. And make no mistake about this. We know that Jesus raised people from the dead. A couple of people were raised from the dead in the Old Testament. But Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is the most important one that was raised from the dead. He is the first fruits from the dead. The first fruits was whenever there was a first gleaning, when the harvest was first coming in, the first fruits was offered to God. They thanked God for his provision. And the second part of that is there's more to come. So when we think about Jesus as the first fruits from the dead, it's God was faithful in raising Jesus. And because he raised him, he'll raise you and me too. So Jesus is the most important one from the dead, and there's more to come. He is the firstborn from the dead, and he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. We see him in his threefold office. Did you notice here in verse 4, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne? There are not seven holy spirits. Some people believe that this was a Picture, the, the picture here is the menorah, the seven, the seven uh, lamps on that candle stand, the, the, not the candle stand, but the lamp stand. And so it's seven different lights. But this is simply telling us that this book is dedicated to God the Father, to Jesus Christ, and to the Holy Spirit in his fullness. Seven is a number of completeness and fullness. And so God, the Father, is here. Jesus Christ is here. And the Holy Spirit is here in his fullness. The seven spirits before the throne. But on... Now, I'm I'm telling you that this book's dedicated to God and the Holy Spirit. But first and foremost, it's dedicated to Jesus... For exactly what he's done. Verse 5. To him who loves us. That that my Bible, King, the New King James says loved us. But it's better translated loves. Who loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And made us kings and priests. Or better translated a kingdom of priests. To his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So God is the eternal one, the Holy Spirit is in his fullness, and Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, 
and we are seen here as a kingdom of priests. That's where we get the Baptists uh, are very clear in a doctrine, the priesthood of the believer. We don't feel like we need to go to any intermediator. Uh, that Jesus loves us, he washed us, and he made us a kingdom of priests. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-10, through 10, we are a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, a holy nation. And so we don't have to go to intermediary. The book of Hebrews says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that by Jesus' sacrifice we have access to God the Father, to the throne, because of Jesus and what he's done. So the dedication is verses 4-6, through six, that the book is dedicated to the triune God, but in particular it's dedicated to Jesus for what he has done for his people. Wow. We've only gotten through six verses, and this has already been marvelous. We'll look at verses 7 and 8. It's the theme. It's the theme. Not the outline. The theme. Look at verse 7. Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Wow, that's the theme. What's the theme? The theme is the return of Jesus Christ. He is returning to the earth. Now, we're going to get into the rapture as we get into chapters 4 and 5. I know everybody wants to get along to chapter 4 because that's when the good stuff starts to happen. But this is an unbelievable foundational chapter in this book and the letter to the seven churches is extremely important in chapters two and three but in chapters four and five we get into john being translated into the heaven and then we start to talk about well this may be a picture of the rapture of the church and we go we'll go to first thessalonians four and talk about the rapture this is not talking about the rapture this verse seven is talking about jesus when he become when he comes to the earth. This is not the rapture. This is the second coming. If you really want to talk about it, the second coming actually is in two phases. The rapture, then the revelation when he comes back to the earth. Jesus first comes in the air. Then, seven years later, he's going to come to the earth. John the Revelator is saying, behold, he's coming with clouds in glory and every eye will see him. That's at the end of the tribulation period. Because when he comes in the rapture, everybody won't see him. He'll be coming as a thief in the night. So this is the theme. The return of Jesus, returning to the earth, defeating all evil, establishing his reign. And in verse 8, it tells us who he is. Doesn't it just give you chills to read verse 8? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Wow, that tells us about Jesus. The Alpha and the Omega, that's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the beginning. He's the end. He was there in the beginning with God. He will be there in the end when he sets up at his kingdom. He is the almighty. He is the all-powerful one. 
And so this is the theme of the book. It is the return of Jesus to defeat evil, establish his reign, put everything under his feet, to rule and reign forever, and to make everything right, and to bring all of God's purposes together. Wow. Well, the occasion is verses 9 through 18. And it breaks down this way. What John heard in verses 9 through 11, what John saw in verses 12 through 16, and what John did in verses 17 and 18. These are very pivotal verses. So let's look at them. Now find verse 9 in your Bible. Let's do this. Let's read all of these verses and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll separate them. Verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were wool, white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Ooh, we need to stop here and go over these verses. First of all, what John heard. Look at verses 9 through 11. Is this not interesting? As I had stated before, they're under the rule of Domitian, who was an evil dictator. And John was a faithful pastor at the church of Ephesus. He is the one whom Jesus loved, he calls himself in the Gospel of John. He's the one who leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He's the one who took care of Mary because he's standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus was dying. And Jesus said, Behold thy mother, behold thy son. He was faithful in pastoring at Ephesus, and where does he find himself? Under the evil rule of Domitian, who sends him to the island that is called Patmos, which is nothing more than a rock quarry. It was about 10 miles long, no more than 6 miles wide, and there's nothing much there. So at the end of his life, he's an old man. At the end of his life, 
He's on the island that is called Patmos. Did you catch what it says here? Verse 9, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because he was a believer, because he was a witness to Jesus, he is suffering. But then it said in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now we have to stop right there, folks. This is an application. Whenever I teach this book, or any book, the aim of any Bible teacher ought to always be application for today. There's not a tremendous amount of application when we get into all of these symbols and the Antichrist and the tribulation. It's the the the, the beast that rise out of the sea and all. And most of the application is be ready. Here's a great application in chapter one. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Some people like to believe that it was the day of the Lord, which is okay, or Easter Sunday. I just take it as it's Sunday. It's the Lord's day, it's Sunday, and God is communing with John. And John is in the spirit. I don't want to go so far to say he's in a trance or he sees a vision. He's just in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's communing with the creator of the universe. Now, let's stop right here and make an application. Look at what his circumstances was. His circumstances were horrible. And how faithful had he been? What would you and I say if this was going on with us? We would say this, God, I walked with you. I walked with you, Jesus, for three and a half years. I was faithful to you. I was in your inner circle. I went with you on the mountain of transfiguration. I went with you in the garden of Gethsemane. I took care of your mother after you were crucified. I've been faithful to you, and my brother James was faithful to you. I've been a very faithful pastor. I have served you for decades and decades. And what is going on now? I am on this stinking island called Patmos. There is nothing here but a rock quarry, and I don't much like it. I hate my circumstances, and I want you to take them away from me. Could that not have been his reaction? The application is, no matter what our circumstances, we need to be communing with God. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Here's the application. Sometimes God has to make our circumstances so that he can put us in a position to use us. He put John on the Isle of Patmos to get him away from everybody and away from everything so that he could reveal all that's going to happen in the end time events. And John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's not complaining. He's not bitter. He's in the spirit. Let that be a lesson for all of us. Well, the next verses, verses 12 through 16 what John saw. Now, we have, we have to spend a few minutes here. You understand that. You know, when, whenever, whenever the picture of Jesus, whenever we get a picture of Jesus in our heart and mind, what, what do you picture Jesus as? Well, I, I picture Jesus as this caring, compassionate, gentle, 
authoritative man. Not weak. Authoritative, yet gentle. Compassionate. Strong, yet tender. We see him as the shepherd, the good shepherd who died for his sheep, the one who leaves the ninety and nine and goes looking for that lost sheep, the gentle, caring, tender, leading shepherd. When I grew up, I'll tell you how I pictured Jesus. I pictured Jesus as, and, and, and some of you who are probably older than 40 or 50 know it's Solomon's head of Christ. Jesus with long brown hair, dark eyes, olive skin, beard, very masculine looking, very strong looking, but also, also with a look of strength yet tenderness, compassion, gentleness. Isn't that the picture we get of Jesus? That's not what John saw though, was it? What did John see? John saw Revelation 1, Judgment Jesus. Did you notice what his characteristics were? His garments suggest that he is the priest and the king. This Jesus here is a lot like the man who appeared to Daniel in the book of Daniel. And, and when we studied the prophecies of Daniel, it's Jesus always reveals himself in circumstances that are compatible with who he's talking to and what the circumstances are. For example, to Abraham, who was a traveler, Jesus came as a traveler. To Jacob, he came as a wrestler, because Jacob constantly wrestled with God. To Joshua, he came as the commander or captain of the Lord's army. Well, to Daniel and to John, Jesus comes as the priest king. That's who he appears here. His garments indicate he's the priest and he's the king. He has white hair, which speaks not only of purity, but eternality. He is ancient. In the book of Daniel, the ancient of days has white hair. His voice is one of power and authority. When I think of that voice, it says it's like the sound of many waters in verse 15. That, to me, it just reminds me of Niagara Falls. When, when you were at a falls like that, you can't hear anything. But that is the voice of power and authority. His feet were made of brass, and brass speaks of judgment all throughout the scripture. In the tabernacle area, when you walked through the opening to go into the courtyard, the first thing you saw was the brazen altar. That's where sin was taken care of. That was the, the, it was wood overlaid with brass. It was called the brazen altar. And that's where sin was dealt with. And that brass bronze always speaks of judgment throughout the scripture. So Jesus not only comes as priest king, he is the eternal one. He has power and authority. He's coming in judgment. And he has a shining countenance which to me speaks of the glory that he had. Remember the transfiguration of Jesus when he took Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw his glory. He had always had that glory, but God let that glory shine through. And that word transfigure is where we get our English word metamorphosis. 
It is a change from the inside out. And so Jesus is shining with glory. He is the glorious one. All of these characteristics intrigue me. But the one that intrigues me the most is his eyes of fire. I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians 3.13 because Jesus has eyes of fire and I think that's extremely important because he's coming in judgment. Now in 1 Corinthians 3.13 we talk about the judgment seat of Christ. So I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 3.13. Oh, actually let's, let's, let's go back to verse 11. 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you get the picture? The picture is the judgment seat of Christ. We're not going to be judged for our sin. Our sin has already been judged at the cross. However, we will be judged for what we do in the body. And when we stand before Jesus, our works will be tried by fire. Doesn't it make sense that that fire might be the burning, fiery gaze of Jesus as he looks at and through us and judges our works? It's something to think about. But he appears to John. John sees him as the risen, glorified, exalted Jesus. And what did John do? He fell at his feet. I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead. And John knew that. John knew he had died. And behold, I'm alive forever. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Isn't it interesting that John falls at his feet as dead? That shows you the Jesus that you picture, Solomon's head of Christ, gentle eyes, compassionate eyes, gentle features. It's not the same Jesus that we're going to be confronted with at the judgment seat of Christ. This is the Jesus that John leaned back on Jesus' breast. John asked him, can we sit on your right hand and on your left when you come into your kingdom? When John was confronted with this Jesus, he fell at his feet as he was dead. It scared the pants off of him. And you know what? That just may very well happen to you and me as well. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. I love verse 18 because he says, and I have the keys of Hades and death. What does a key mean? A key means access and authority. If you see somebody walking around, especially if you see one of these uh, maintenance people for the church, they've got about 15,000 keys on their key ring that they wear around their belt. That shows they've got access 
to anywhere. They've got the authority to go in all of these different rooms throughout the campus. You've seen those kind of people throughout. So Jesus is saying, I've got the keys. I have access. I've got authority. But my keys are for Hades and death. Now you might wonder, well, I thought Hades was death. Well, think about it. Hades was the realm of the dead. Hades was where the soul went. When we think of death, we think about our body dying. And so Jesus is saying, I've got control of the body. I've got control of the soul. I have authority over both and I have access to both. Aren't you glad if you're a believer in Jesus? And I hope that you are. And if you're not, this is a very good chapter. You come face to face with Jesus. You repent of your sin and say, Jesus, I know that you were gentle and humble and came as a suffering servant, but I have seen you now in this chapter as the risen, glorified, exalted Christ, and I want you to be my priest and my king and my savior. If you've never done that, ask him to do that right now because then you will rest assured that he has the power and authority and access of Hades and death. Whew, this is good. When we see what John did in verses 17 and 18, it just is an application for us is that we need a new awareness of Christ and his glory. We talked about that in Bible Fellowship not too long ago about the flippant way that some people treat God. They call him the man upstairs. They think he's simply a grandfather who lives in heaven. They don't have the proper respect, the proper awe, the proper reverence of God. And if you get a clear picture of Jesus, of who he is and what he's coming back to do, you will get a different view of him. We need a new awareness of Christ and his glory because he is coming back. Make no mistake about it. Well, verse 19 is the outline. Isn't this interesting? Revelation is the only book in the Bible that I know of that gives its own outline. Here's the outline. Write the things that you've seen the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. That's what it says in verse 19. So the outline is this. John, write the things which you have seen. Chapter 1, risen, glorified, exalted Christ. That's the things you've seen. Number 2, write the things which are. That's the letter, the letters to the seven churches. Those are the things that are. That's what John does next. And thirdly, write the things which will take place after this. Those are future events. And so those are the things that are going to take place down the road. That's the outline of the book. It is a Christ-centered book. It is an open book. It is filled with symbols and prophecy. It carries a blessing that we've already seen in verse 3. It's relevant it is majestic because a lot of it is around the throne. It is universal. It deals with the whole world, 
all nations, peoples, tribes, and tongue, tongues. And it is climactic. God brings to a close all the things that he was doing. All of his purposes come together, comes to a climax where Jesus rules and reigns and ushers in the eternal state. So he says, John, write the things which you've seen, the things which you are, and the things which will take place after this. This is a wonderful book. It's a Christ-centered book. And it is filled with symbols, but it is a book of blessing. It's relevant to us. It's majestic. It's universal. And it's climactic. Well, before I, we get into verse 20, I, I want to just give you a glimpse of how we're going to interpret this book. Because it's important, there's, there's four different primary methods of interpretation. The preterist view, that's P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T, the preterist view just simply says that all the events of the Revelation were fulfilled during the days of either Nero or Domitian in the first century, first hundred years. And the book, the, this book is concerned only with events of that century. The, the evaluation for that is the, the book is just reduced to a little bit more than just a history book. That's all it is. So we're going to discount that view. The second view is the historical view. And, and that is really a view of post-millennialism, that Jesus is going to return at the end of the millennium. And, and the historical view shows that the revelation is a panorama of church history from the apostles to the end of the age. And that's historical. But, you know, all the metaphors and symbols make that not probably true. The third method is the idealist view, or the ideological view. And that's simply, that is an amillennialist view, which means no millennium. Some people believe there will never be a millennium. And, and that simply, this book is simply about the battle of good and evil. And that, that, that's all it means. Well, that doesn't help us in, in our study because we don't believe some of this stuff has happened yet. So that's the fourth view that we're going to take in this course, and that is the futuristic view, the futurist view, and that most of this book has not yet happened. It's a premillennialism view that Jesus is going to come before the millennium. He's going to come at the rapture, and I I'm a pre-tribulational rapturist, and so Jesus is going to come, rapture the church, the tribulation is going to occur, and that none of these things have happened yet. So that's how we're going to interpret this book. Many of things have not happened. Well, before we get to the applications, let's look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Don't you just love it when Jesus interprets the book for us? When Jesus tells us what some of these things mean? Sometimes, I love that when I'm reading the parables uh, that he says in the Gospels, because I'm thinking, what does that mean? The parable of the sower, the parable of the pearl of great price, the parable of the lost coin. Many times, not always, but many times, Jesus would explain this to the disciples. Here's what these means. The word of God is the seed, etc. Well, Jesus is saying, verse 20, I'm going to solve a couple of these mysteries for you. 
the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, those are the angels of the seven churches. Now, most Bible scholars believe that they're not actually angels, or they, they could be. It could be an overseeing angel over every church, just like in the book of Daniel. We saw the prince of Persia. That was an evil angel, a demon over the prince of Persia, and we know that God has good angels which will be ministering. And so it could be that the angels are over the churches, but it's probably better understood to mean that these are the pastors or the overseers or the elders of these churches. And isn't it great that the seven lampstands are the seven churches? And if you go back in verse 13, it says, and in the midst of the seven lampstands. So Jesus is in the midst of his churches. He knows his churches. He's intimately aware of them. He's involved with them. And the messengers, the pastors, the overseers are right there in his right hand. The hand of power and authority and access. That is a wonderful way of ending chapter 1. That Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands and he's got his servants in his hand. Well, are you ready for the applications? Because the applications, as I said, in many of these chapters, the application is be ready because all these things are going to happen. And when we get to chapters 4 and 5, I'm going to I'm going to lay out my case for a pre-tribulational rapture that the rapture will occur before the tribulation. And one of those examples I'll, we'll see next week when when Jesus talks writes a letter to the the church at Philadelphia, but that's next week. Here's the application. We know that all these things are going to happen. And we know God is sovereign. He calls himself the Almighty. He calls himself the one who is and was and is to come. And Jesus, who has total control, he has the keys to Hades and death. And so we know all of these things are going to come to pass. So the application is, when you have assurance of the future, you have stability in the present. That if God's got all of that mapped out, if God's going to take care of the Antichrist, if God's going to nab Satan and throw him in the lake of fire, if God's going to do make everything right, and he's going to judge, and he's going to put everything in his proper place, if he's going to take care of all of that, he'll take care of me in the here and now. He'll take care of me if my finances are in disarray. He'll take care of my relationships that are broken. He will take care of my job situation. He will take care of my ministry. He will help me when I use my spiritual gift. When you have assurance of the future, you have stability in the present. Secondly, don't you want a relationship with the one who has the keys? Especially the keys of Hades and death? Satan wants to make you think that he has the keys, but he doesn't. He's a liar and a murderer. Jesus is the Almighty. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the Almighty One. He's the one that was dead, but it is alive. And he's the one that has his servants in his right hand. And he's the one that's in the midst of the lampstand. And he's got the keys of Hades and death 
Don't you want a relationship with that one? Thirdly, do you need a fresh awareness of Christ and His glory? Sometimes we get too comfortable. Sometimes we talk about Jesus as simply being our guide, the man upstairs. We lose sight that he was the suffering servant. We lose sight the fact that he's ministering to us, ministering on our behalf today in heaven at the God's throne as we read and study in the book of Hebrews. He is our high priest He is our advocate. Sometimes we get too comfortable until we read these verses that Jesus is going to be presenting himself as the priest king with white shining hair, powerful authoritative voice, feet that are brass, speaking of judgment, shining countenance, his glory all over the place, and eyes of fire testing our works. Sometimes we need a fresh awareness of Jesus and his glory because we get too comfortable. And so the question I have, fourthly, is what about your circumstances? Do you feel like God has let you down? Are you questioning where God has you? Are you having a sour attitude because God hasn't answered every prayer? What about John? John's on a rock quarry after serving Jesus for probably 50 plus years. Faithful, faithful, faithful. Yet his circumstances stunk. And yet, John says, verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What about your circumstances? And what about your spirit? Is your spirit communing with God's Spirit, that you are His son or His daughter? What about your circumstances? And what about your walk with Him daily? And the last application is this. Are you ready to meet this Jesus? Now, you know, you heard that song, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. What Will I bow to Him? Will I sing praises? Will I not be able to speak at all? Well, what if when you get to heaven, it's this Jesus? Not not the gentle shepherd Jesus. What about this Jesus? Are you ready to meet the glorified, risen, exalted Christ? How about your life today? Are you ready to meet him? Are you walking with him daily? Are you in communion with him? Are you worried about the the present? Not knowing that he's got the present and the future firmly in his hands? Do you have a relationship with the one who has the keys? Do you need a fresh vision of him? A fresh awareness of him and his glory? Are you sour and bitter about your circumstances? The final question, are you ready to meet this Jesus? What a start. Chapter 1. For next week, read the first, the next two chapters, chapters two and three. It's the letters to the seven churches. Now, I know we could take seven weeks to do these seven, seven letters, but we're going to do them in one session, and we can do it. I've done it before, and we'll do it again. 
But I hope that you have a fresh awareness of Jesus and that you are already in love with this book and that you will come back next week eager and on fire to dig into the Word, that you will be communing with the Creator of the universe as you walk with Him daily and you will have a fresh awareness of Jesus and who He is and what He wants and that you'll be in the Spirit walking with Him intimately every day. That is my prayer for you as we walk through this next week before we meet again. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time we've spent together. Lord, thank you for the word. Thank you for the truth of the word. Lord, this is powerful. Lord, we need a fresh vision of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that he's the author and, vision, author and finisher of our faith and that he is the glorified, risen, exalted Christ. He's prophet, priest, and king. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who is and was and in the, is to come, the Almighty, and he's got the keys. Lord, I thank you for that. Teach us truth day by day as we walk with you. All the glory, all the honor, all the praise goes to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.